Well, good morning again, and welcome to all of you here. Welcome to those of you that are watching from home. We're excited that you're joining us today, wherever you find yourself. Um, I wanted to point out a few announcements that we have. First of all, we have a bap uh, not a baptism class. <laughs> Have baptism. I just see it out of the corner of my eye, and it's all I can think about. No, and um, a partnership class that is happening um, in May on the twenty second. And let me tell you a little bit about what that is. If you've never taken the class before, it is a space for you to come and learn about our church, who we are, what it is that we're about, and we call it a partnership class because many people before they come to that class wonder, hey. How could I get involved here? I want to do more, and I want to be more a part of the community. And so that's just an opportunity for you to hear about ways or on-ramps that there are for you. And so if you've never taken that class, we would love to have you sign up for that. Um, you can do that by filling out your online communication card, or you can text the word partner to our Brookview number, and we will give you all the details that you're going to need for that class. Also, we just strongly encourage you to RSVP for church. Um, as the world is opening up a bit, more and more of us are comfortable coming back to church, and we love that, and we are so excited for that. And it is so helpful for us when you RSVP early, um, because this is a bit of a puzzle. And you'll notice that some people are kind of sitting side by side. Um, some people are more comfortable with that. Others want a little bit of distance, and we are okay with all of that and we want to accommodate whatever your comfort level is to be able to be here and so um, we just ask like there are a few questions on your RSVP to church and asks are you comfortable sitting next to someone and for some of you you're like yeah but I want it to be next to my friend that I know is vaccinated that is totally fine for you to do. We will not be setting up vaccinated and non-vaccinated sections. We will not ask you to show your card or anything like that. We just think that you are probably um, amazingly mature adults that can choose what you want in your life. And so we want you to be able to do that. So never feel bad about making special requests. We want to um, just accommodate you and have you feel comfortable as you're here with us worshiping. Um, also, I had mentioned earlier that we have an online communication card, and we love it when you guys fill that out. We love hearing from those of you that are, that are at home and watching as well. It just helps us to kind of stay connected, um, and you can respond to anything I've talked about this morning that way as well. The last thing is I want to wish all of you mamas out there happy Mother's Day. Yeah. Um, but we also, here at Brookview, okay, also I'll say we are not going to do, because we have baptisms this morning, our traditional reading of I Love You Forever. Yeah. <laughs> Some people are like, yeah, cool, I forgot my tissues. Um, so we'll, we'll miss that. But the reality is we just want to say we, we understand that Mother's Day is a fantastic day for some and it's a hard day for others. And for some of you, it's both. You are, you are right in the middle ground. And so we just wanna hold space for that this morning and to say it's okay for this to be a great day and it's okay for this to be a hard day. And what we know is that Jesus stands next to us in it all, in the joy, 
and the sorrow. And so I just want to speak something over all of you ladies. At Brookview, we celebrate all women today. So you do not have to be a mom to receive honor this morning. From our baby girls to the oldest girls we have, we want to celebrate you. And the way that we choose to do that is by giving you nail polish, because who doesn't need another tube of nail polish? and chocolate. So I wish that I could provide shoes for all of you as well, because I feel like that's also something we would like. But um, we held it off, and we just did nail polish. So that's in the foyer. You can browse that and grab those. Those are for you. Um, you might have to push some small children out of the way um, to get yours, because that's a pretty exciting day for them to um, at Brookview, and we want them to remember growing up like that, like all girls, girl power today. So um, so I just want to read this passage that comes out of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul um, is kind of speaking it over the church in Ephesus, and so this is for you. May you have power together with all the Lord's holy people to understand Christ's love. May you know how wide and long and high and deep it is. That's my prayer for you today. I just want to say my love, you're beautiful. I could not ask for a better mother to my kids. I love you. Happy Mother's Day. Brace yourself. In 2017, Sean Parker, does anybody know who Sean Parker is? What's he affiliated with? Napster? That's old school. That's old school. Yes, he is affiliated with Napster. He was the guy behind Napster and making music free and all of that is crazy. And then he was affiliated because, with Facebook. He was the first president of Facebook and he helped this thing get huge. Okay. Sean Parker now refers to himself as a conscientious objector to social media. And in his interview, and he did an interview in 2017, and he said this about social media. He said, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you more likes and comments. It's a social validation feedback loop, exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. Good morning. Welcome to church. 
So today is part four in this five-part series that we're in on establishing healthy rhythms for life. So routines and practices and habits that enable us to flourish, that enable us to live out our deepest values. And today, I want us to consider our digital rhythms. What Sean Parker is saying about the reality of technology and economics is this, that most technology is intentionally engineered for distraction and addiction because that's where the money is. And this is creating a huge problem in our culture. Yes? Yes. And the tech executives who are putting this stuff out, pumping this stuff out, are well aware of the problem that they're creating. How do you know? You know because many of them actually pay huge money to send their own children to device-free schools. Wow. Okay, John Mark Comer, a pastor that I love down in, in uh, Portland that Kate turned me on to, he said this about the paradox. I love this. He says, stories are leaking out of Silicon Valley of tech executives paying through the roof for their children to go to a device-free school, which to me sounds like the epitome of Biggie Small's maxim, never get high on your own supply. <laughs> Many of you, you've heard of Seth Godin, who's an author and a guru on tech stuff, and a few years ago he blogged out, this is a few years ago when people were still blogging, he blogged out a warning he said, your smartphone has two jobs. On one hand, it was hired by you to accomplish certain tasks. In the scheme of things, it's a, it's a screaming bargain and a miracle. But most of the time, your phone works for corporations, assorted acquaintances, and large social networks. They've hired it to put you to work for them. You're not the customer. You're the product. Your attention and your anxiety is getting sold cheap. When your phone grabs your attention, when it makes you feel inadequate, when it pushes you to catch up, to consume, and to fret, it's not working for you, is it? On demand doesn't mean you do things when the device demands. So here's the point that many critics are shouting. What's being bought and sold is our attention. The way companies make money off of you is your attention. Your attention is their payday. It drives our economics. And what is the effect then on society? Well, if you ask any school teacher, they will tell you what this is doing to human beings. And they will tell you, we are losing our capacity to pay attention. <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> Did you get that? Better check that. You guys, sustained attention is critical for the things that matter most to us. Like, you have to have it. If you want to learn, if you want to grow, if you want to love well, if you want to enter into deep friendships, if you want to grow as an apprentice of Jesus, if you want to connect with God in a meaningful way, if you want to love your spouse well, if you want to relate deeply to your own children, it will require sustained attention. But you guys, as a culture, our attention span is dropping with each passing year. Like, scientifically, it's dropping. Get this. In the year 2000, before the digital revolution, the attention span for the average American was 12 seconds. <laughs> which, 
Okay, that's shockingly low when you think about it, which means in, even in the year 2000, we didn't have a lot to work with. <laughs> I mean, 12 seconds. Okay, but now, okay, after a decade and a half of smartphones and constant social media, it is down to eight seconds. Now, here's an interesting factoid. A goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. You guys, we are losing the goldfish. Okay, here's, here's the report from an article a few years back. This is in Time Magazine. You're like, where did you get this? Like, I mean, pastor of the internet, you can't believe everything. This is Time Magazine. Okay, the average attention span for the notoriously ill-focused goldfish is nine seconds. But according to a new study from Microsoft, Eugene, here we go, people now generally lose concentration after eight seconds, highlighting the effects of an increasingly digitalized lifestyle on the brain. Researchers in Canada surveyed 2,000 participants and studied the brain activity of 112 others using EEGs. Microsoft found that since the year 2000, or about when the mobile revolution began, the average attention span dropped from 12 seconds to 8 seconds. And here's the quote. Heavy multi-screeners find it difficult to filter out irrelevant stimuli. They're more easily distracted by multiple streams of media, the report read. Okay, now if there's a silver lining, on the positive side, the report says our ability to multitask has drastically improved in the mobile age. Interesting. Now, I, I don't want to, you to think of me as like a soapbox preacher screaming doom at you. Uh, I, have, I actually have no desire to go back to some like uh, mythical pre-digital utopia where we all just live on a farm and have no electricity and we all have our own chickens and we bake our own bread. Although, Brian, you would crush that. <laughs> that dude's sourdough that he, that he discovered during COVID with all of his free time is epic. <laughs> so if he's not your friend, make friends. <laughs> so I, I like the modern world. I, I, like, I, I, like, I like Spotify. I love Spotify. I like my iPhone. I like the internet. I like YouTube. I really, really like ESPN.com. I don't know about you, I don't know how I would get anywhere without Waze. Do you guys remember the days before Waze? Go down to the willow tree and take a left, and then when you see the water tower, start thinking about heading right. Are you kidding me? Grandma, come on. And I can't even imagine living for 10 seconds without knowing the state of the weather. But this dropping capacity for attention is taking a giant toll on us. It is a problem for our society as a whole. Think about the way that, that app, apps like Facebook and Twitter amplify political tensions and what happened in this, in this last year. I mean, it is really tough to have a well-rounded political conversation in 280 characters or less. So we're navigating a world that is overflowing with cliches and almost completely devoid of conversations. You guys, the complexity of the modern world, it demands sustained attention just to get our heads around what's really going on, much less to formulate a truly informed thought. It requires way more than an easy hashtag of quick slander. So there are societal implications for sure, but also there is a massive threat to our soul. You think about our emotional health or our capacity to just live at ease. 
We live with so much anxiety and stress and emotional chaos. And yet I think it all comes down to there's something even more costly happening. And it's this. The lack of sustained attention has devastating effects on our spiritual life. Now, when I say spiritual life, some of you automatically tune out. Because you're like, okay. Like, what does that mean? So when I say the word spiritual life, let me, let me define what I mean by that. Because in our culture these days, spiritual life usually just means like I go hiking on the weekends and I do yoga two or three times a week. Okay, and people are like, well, if it disrupts that, I can deal with it. It's usually like this really disembodied feeling or whatever. And then inside the church, when people hear spiritual life, they often think about spiritual activities, right? Prayer, reading scripture, fasting, going to church, worship, and you guys could think of many, many more. But when I say a lack of sustained attention impacts spiritual life, I, want to, I really want to define spiritual life. What is spiritual life? Well, it's actually very simple, and I think very, very deep. Here's what it is. Spiritual life is our capacity to receive and give love in relationship with God and others. It's all about love being given and received. And you guys, when you think about it, this is how Jesus defined it. And I believe at our deepest levels, you guys, this is what we most ache for. It is. And some people will kind of hear spiritual life and kind of say, yeah, well, you know what? I'm just not a religious person. I've just never really been a, like a spiritual person. I'm just not really into that. But I think that that often assumes that spirituality is something that it isn't. At its core, it is all about giving and receiving love. And we all ache for this. We yearn for this. And this requires sustained attention. For the last weeks, we've been thinking about rhythms of life about organizing life around routines and rhythms and practices and creating habits and a schedule that helps us become a people of love, people who know how to love and how to receive love, people that, that have character and, and know how to cultivate relationships, deeper relationships with God to be sure, but also with others. In fact, a few weeks ago, when we kicked this thing off, I encouraged you guys to do the eulogy exercise, and many of you did. And what many of us found out is, is, is that when we like wrote out what we would want, we picked out someone in our life and said, what would you want that person to say about you at your memorial if they got up to speak? It was an intense exercise. But what many of us found out is, is that in the end, the thing that really matters most is our character and the type of impact we have on the people we love most. And here's what's really cool. This is exactly what Jesus wants for you. Like, he wants character and he wants relationships, meaningful, deep relationships. He wants meaning and he wants love. A life where love is given and received deeply and consistently. This is what he's trying to do in your life. So as the world opens up and we can start rescheduling stuff in our lives, we've been thinking about our rhythms, our routines, habits, schedules. Like, do we want life to go back to exactly the way that it was pre-COVID, or is this, in a sense, a chance to hit reset? And so today, I want us to see, here's what I want us to see about rhythms. Even if you develop a wonderful plan for much healthier rhythms, your phone alone can sabotage your best intentions. Amen? I mean, let that sink in. 
even if your plan for healthy rhythms, if, if you have a great plan, if it doesn't ruthlessly eliminate digital distraction, it may well sabotage your best intentions. And I, you guys, I get it. I wrestle with this in the same way everyone else does. I, I live in the same world you do. Some of you are like, no, you don't. Yes, I do. And to be completely honest, I'm shocked at how easy it is to distract me. How easily I just get sucked into God knows what on my phone. Right? Like, did you know that Ashton Kutcher is, is now, he looks old? Really? Well, check that out. <laughs> 27 clicks later, looking at 27 celebrities that aren't Ashton Kutcher, I'm like, you know what? I think I'm just going to Google Ashton Kutcher. And I look at him and go, actually, he's still pretty smoking hot. <laughs> right? I... I'm a work in progress on this. I, 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 like, I am a work in progress on this, but I am working on this. By, that, by the way, I had to use a male example for that one, just for you, babe. <laughs> I'm working on this because I think it's a really big deal. And so today, I, I want us to think about our need for digital boundaries. We need it. And, and to be fair, as we go into this, it's not like the Bible has a lot to say about a smartphone. I mean, I can't take you to some chapter in the book of Revelation and be like, you guys, the locusts in this chapter are really just all about Wi-Fi. <laughs> Although there are crazier things than that that get done with the book of Revelation. But I, I don't think John was like secretly, secretly writing about Twitter or TikTok. Uh, scripture doesn't speak to us directly about this stuff. And if we try to make it speak directly about this, we're doing weird stuff. But... Here's the thing. The writers of Scripture do have a lot to say about attention and the key role that attention plays in our spiritual formation. And you guys, we could look at a thousand Scriptures on this. Like trying to pick one was really challenging. Today, what I want to do is just walk very quickly through a Psalm of David because I think it has a ton to say to us about the nature and importance of attention. Um, so we're going to look at Psalm 16. And in this psalm, David was, was writing at a time of extreme chaos. Now, we don't know the exact occasion behind Psalm 16. With some of the psalms, we do. We're told. We're not told on this one, but it was clearly sometime during the life and the reign of King David, which means there were all sorts of war and civil war and political unrest. And so Psalm 16 is all about finding refuge in God. And for us, in the chaos of our own time, political, social, emotional chaos, how much do we need to find a way to take refuge in God? So here we go, Psalm 16. Here's what David writes. He says, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night. My heart instructs me. I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. 
My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So David is fighting to keep his gaze on God in the midst of all this chaos and crumbling stuff all around him. And so I want to draw your attention to two ideas in this psalm. The first is is about what David won't do, what he's committed to not doing, and the other is about what he will do. First, what he won't do. He writes, Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. So first, he says he will not go after the gods of his day. He is observant enough to realize that those who do, quote, will suffer more and more. Now notice, please notice, he doesn't say that they will suffer at the hand of God. We need to be careful not to read that kind of view of God into his words. Now, he could be saying that, but I would argue it's far more likely that they will suffer more and more at the hands of the very gods that they're choosing to worship. Some astute people have remarked that there's really no such thing as atheism. That in reality, we all worship something. Follower of Jesus, Buddhist, atheist, all people worship. The question is, who or what do you worship? Because what you worship, it will shape you. If you worship money, it will shape you. If you worship power, it will shape you. If you worship beauty, if you worship sex, if you worship success, those, the worship of those things, they will do something to you. But the worship of of other gods, or idolatry as it's called in the Bible, is kind of tricky in our world. Because our idols, really, for the most part, have been despiritualized, right? I mean, even if there is a spiritual power that's behind money or behind power, which there might be, still it doesn't really present to us as a spiritual thing. So when we see idolatry in Scripture... It's easy for us to just sort of write it off as irrelevant and something we don't deal with anymore. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, like, I have never actually been tempted to offer my firstborn goat or sheep to the god Moloch. <laughs> That's just not like a thing in my world. Now, maybe some of you have, and I want you to know this is a safe space, <laughs> and none of us are here to judge you. But for most of us, it's, it's just not like that. Our idols are more subtle. They're still here, but they're more subtle. And so it's easy to forget that as followers of Jesus, we are invited into a counterculture. It is so easy to think, no, okay, we're just, I mean, we're just Northwesterners and we're suburban people and, and we love everybody and, and but like everybody else, but we, but we have Jesus. We're, we're just like everybody else, except, you know, we go to church a little and maybe have this, this one thing that's slightly tweaked. Guys, we, we live in a culture that worships many gods. And we are actually being called and invited by Jesus into something different, something more beautiful. We're called to learn and live the way of Jesus and to leave behind the gods of our culture. And David says, I will not pour out libations 
of blood to such gods, meaning I will not give my life and my resources to the same kinds of things that the people do all around me. But then David goes on to say what he will do. And so take a look at verses 5 to 8. It says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. God, you're, uh, you're up to something. You're going to give me something wonderful, too wonderful for me to know. He says, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. And how will David attempt to do this? Here's, here's, here's the verse that I want us to camp on for a little bit. Verse 8. He says, I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So David will not pour out libations to idols, but he will keep his eyes on the Lord. Okay, question. How do you keep your eyes on the Lord? I mean, you can't look at God like you do, like you do Trevor. I mean, I know about you. It's hard for me to keep my eyes off of that guy. <laughs> you, you can't just look, you know, you can't just look at the way you do Deb, right? Or, or anybody else, Shane. So what in the world does this mean? Well, let's look at a few other translations and see if we can kind of get the idea. And I, by the way, this is a very helpful thing to do when we come across a verse and we want more clarity. Look at it in multiple translations. How do you do that? Go, to, go I would recommend the website BibleGateway.com. It's what I use. It's free, for heaven's sakes. Um, it's God's gift to the world. So here's the same verse in the English Standard Version. It says, I have set the Lord always before me. So I set God before my mind, before my imagination. The New American Standard has, I have set the Lord continually before me. The New Revised Standard Version has, I keep the Lord always before me. And this has similarities, I think, to what, what Jesus says in the, in the Gospel of John about abiding in the vine. He's, he's like, I am, I am the vine and you are the branch. Abide in me and my goodness will flow into you. David is saying he will do all he can to keep his mind focused on God. Um, Dallas Willard uh, once said, love Dallas Willard, he said, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Many of you guys know that, that Jen and I have developed a practice these past years, um, and we call it What? Soaping, yeah. Soaping. <laughs> Are you serious right now? It's soaping. Come on, man. It's a way to engage Scripture and to engage God. And it is a way to do it in a way that's, that's very personal. And for us, it's, it's taken a lot of time. And it's taken a lot of intentionality to sort of cultivate this as something that's meaningful. And it hasn't really come all that easily for me. I was trusting people that were farther along with Jesus than me who said, this is helpful. I'm like, okay, I tried it once. And I'm like, meh. But I, then I tried it a thousand times. Like, okay, something's happening here. I had to stay with it, nurture it. And what I found is the more I do it, the more meaningful it becomes. And yet here's the thing about it. While I'm soaping, the whole intention of it is, is to completely give my attention to God. But the idea is not then that I give God my full attention and then and I'm done with God for the day. 
right? And I just walk away and kind of forget about God. The idea is that through the practice of soaping, I'm actually being awakened. I'm being awakened to God's goodness and activity all throughout my life. It awakens me to his voice guiding me and loving me, and it enables me to become more and more aware of him and where he's at in my life and in the world all around me. It enables me to set him before me so much more. The practice of soaping is meaningful while I'm doing it, but I find that the more I practice it, the more my attention just sort of drifts toward God the rest of the day. Now, please understand, I am not saying that I only ever think about God, right? But here's what I am saying. I'm, I'm much less prone to go several hours or even a day or two and hardly give God a thought, which happens even to pastors, my friends. And this heightened awareness of God has been a really big deal for me. The times that I have, that I have done this, uh, you know, the most in my walk with Jesus are the times that I have grown the fastest and I've grown the deepest. This is when the fruits of the Spirit just start to kind of bubble more naturally out of me. And I like who I am a lot more when I set the Lord continually before me. In different seasons of my walk with Jesus, it's been different practices. In some seasons, it's been reading a ton, whether it's scripture or other books that are helpful. Uh, in others, it's revolved around listening to tons of, of sermons. And so please know, please know, I am not saying soaping is the only way, especially for those of you who go soaping. Um, <laughs> but however it is in a season that I, I find a way to give God more and more of my focused attention my thoughts tend to drift to him more and more, and that's good. And so my experience tells me that attention is actually the portal to spiritual formation. In other words, what you give your attention is the person you become. I mean, in the end, think about this. In the end, our life is little more than the sum total of whatever it was we gave our attention to. And this bodes really well for those who give a, a, a ton of attention to good things, to God and his goodness and to love and to grace and to joy in the world all around us, to things that produce love and joy and peace. But it bodes less well for those who give their attention to the 24-hour news cycle. This nonstop feed of outrage and anxiety and slander and shame or this constant feed of emotional, like emotion-charged drama. Or for those uh, just who, who just engage in the nonstop cycle of celebrity gossip. Ashton Kutcher. Or things that just happen to uh, evoke comparison and fear and inadequacy. I mean, when you think about it, for better or for worse, we become what we give our attention to. And this is why Paul writes, this is why Paul writes, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Why would he even need to write that? Is that not like, duh? But it's not like, duh. If attention is the doorway to our soul, and if what we let through that door will, be, will determine who or what we become, and if at the same time we live in an age where there are literally multi-billion dollar multinational corporations doing everything they can to make money off of our attention via distraction and addiction, 
then we best become very, very purposeful about what we give our attention to. Because if we're not, we won't be giving our attention to a lot of things. It'll just be stolen from us. Neil Postman was an author, educator, and media theorist and cultural critic. He was a professor at NYU, and he was deeply concerned about technology. He wrote a book uh, that became a pretty famous book uh, entitled, and I just love the title of this, Amusing Ourselves to Death. You guys, he wrote that book in 1985. So he was concerned about stuff way before our current age. But he gave an insightful warning that I think is worth mulling over. Here's what he said. He said, technology must never be accepted as the natural order of things. Every technology, from an IQ test to an automobile to a television set to a computer, is a product of a particular economic and political context and carries with it a program, an agenda, and a philosophy that may or may not be life-enhancing and that therefore requires scrutiny, criticism, and control. We need to cultivate a healthy suspicion of technology. Technological and even economic progress does not necessarily equal human or spiritual progress, as heretical as that sounds in the modern Western world. Newer and faster does not mean it's better. What looks like progression is often regression with an agenda. Others get rich, and we get distracted and addicted. The Amish community. I mean, who doesn't immediately think of the Amish community? <sighs> Love those guys. <laughs> and it is such a contrast to modern society, right? I mean, the way they interact with technology is so different and so extreme, so they seem so separate and so un unusual to us that oftentimes we forget, as those of us that are followers of Jesus, guys, these are our brothers and sisters in Jesus in America. These are a Christ-following people. And it's a common misconception that they are against all technology. They're not. In fact, if you visit the Amish, like in Pennsylvania or whatever, you will see the presence of various modern things. For instance, I just wanted to show you guys a picture of Amish people. And so I, I used Google Images, and I just keyworded Amish, and this popped up. These Amish kids play, carrying plastic coolers. I love this. Uh, they don't reject all technology, all new technology. Here's the thing. They're just really selective. When a new technology comes on the scene, rather than just adopting it with no evaluation, they evaluate it. They test it. They wait. They watch for a little while from the sidelines like scientists in a lab. And what they do is they let us volunteer for the human trial. <laughs> Seriously, you guys, we are the lab rats. And then what happens is after they've watched us for a few years and see what a technology does to us, then they have a community-wide conversation and they discuss, will this new technology, the car, the phone, the computer, or whatever, will, will it, they watch us in the human trial and they decide, will it make our life better before God and in community with one another? Will it increase our love and joy and our peace or not? 
For example, like a famous one, super famous one, right, is they decided against the, the car, the automobile. They decided that after much discussion and much observation, that it might lead to the erosion of community. They reasoned that if people had a car and no longer had to live within walking distance of each other, people might become transient, families might scatter, and eventually relationships might break down, and it could eventually make people more consumeristic. I have no idea what they're talking about. So they said, we, we need to live within walking distance of each other, and we need to live a lifestyle that doesn't facilitate consumerism because that will eat away at our love and our joy and our peace, and it will ultimately damage our community with one another. And that's even more important to us than the convenience of being able to move around easily. So here's what I think. I think we all need to live like the Amish. Okay, no. I, I haven't been like building up to that for 18 years just to drop that on you guys. Uh, but I do think we might learn something really valuable from them. At minimum, we might learn that it's healthy to adopt a reasonable suspicion of new technology because not everything is life-enhancing. There are definitely many, many benefits that comes with lots of stuff. But here's the thing. There are also serious costs. And so we need to weigh those in. We need to be real. We need to be wise. Okay, so to close this message, I just want, you to, I just want to encourage you to ask yourself, what are some digital boundaries that could help me flourish? And I want to say also that this is not a one-size-fits-all. Like, my boundaries are different from Jen's. Um, and, and so you need something that makes sense for you in your given situation. What would make the most sense for you? And it's interesting because like, you can go online and find all sorts of suggestions, like all sorts of lists of best practices when it comes to digital boundaries. And it's, I, I don't discourage that. It's, it might be helpful. It probably would be helpful, a good idea to look through some of that. But you have to have some discernment about what actually makes sense for you. Um, over the years, I've, I've wrestled a ton with this stuff for myself. And so I'm going to share with you a few boundaries that I have for myself. Please understand, these are not for everyone. I am not telling you to adopt my boundaries. In fact, to be honest with you, I, I kind of even hesitate to share these with you guys because, number one, I don't want anybody to just sort of blindly emulate me. And number two, I don't want you to judge me. And so when I share these, some of you are going to want to judge me. Some of you are going to think, well, that's stupid. And I just want to say in advance, shut up. <laughs> Don't judge me. Don't blindly follow what I do and don't judge me. Deal? Deal. Okay. Here are a few digital boundaries that I've adopted for myself. First, I don't do social media. <laughs> That's ironic because you're the one that told me not to. Yes. So, okay, I don't use Facebook. I don't use Instagram. I don't use Twitter. Some of you will find this hard to believe. I don't use TikTok. 
I don't need it. I got moves, baby. Now, obviously, I do use YouTube, okay? And so hello to all of you in YouTube land at this moment. Um, but I don't use Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or any of that kind of thing. Why? Well, after giving this serious thought, I decided that for me right now in my life, it could change. While there would be huge benefits, there would also be huge costs. And so because the costs are so high, for now, I am off of social media. Now, I have a little quiz that has a prize. Are you guys ready for this? Okay, so this is going to be the first to get it. First to shout it out, first to get it. Here we go. I decided to get off of Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook in what year? Go. Who said that? Brian. Brian Durr. Yeah. You guys, that was a trick question. I never got on. I did not have to hop off because I never got on. Um, and I do have a prize for you, Brian. <laughs> Stand up, my friend. Whoppers, because the idea of not being on social media, is that not a whopper of an idea? And let's go. And because Tony Ellersick, I believe, was the first person to shout out an incorrect answer and at least lead the way in this <laughs> with courage and, and fortitude, I've got milk duds because, again, the idea of not being on social media, it's a, kind of a dud of an idea. Dad jokes, Jeff Satterthwaite, I'm, you're my man on this. <laughs> you guys, I have never had a Twitter or Instagram account, ever. I do technically have a Facebook account. Some of you are like, you do? I do, but I have no friends. <laughs> like, I, so here's why. I have, I've had to look at some things that are like related to being a pastor of a church over the years that are on Facebook, and you can't do that without, a, without a, an account. Okay, so, but I, do, I don't ever sit and scroll Facebook, ever. And again, I have no friends. <laughs> why? Why in the world would I choose to live this way? Because for me right now, I don't think that the benefits outweigh the costs. Do you guys want me to make my case? No, you don't. You don't want me to make my case. And so I'm not going to try to convince any of you. But I will say, here's what I will say from my own experience. You actually can live a very nice life without it. It is possible. I know it is. Some of you are judging me. Stop it right now. Okay, let's move on. Another digital boundary. I put my phone to bed at night. My phone doesn't go to bed with me. I put it on its happy little charger downstairs. Yes, I tuck it in. Some of you are breaking out on a cold sweat right now. I, I, I tuck it in. I give it a little smooch, right? Why? I don't want the digital stuff assaulting me all night long. I just don't. So I put my phone to bed. And in the morning, I don't grab it first thing. Like I take a shower, I warm up to the day, and then maybe, maybe I have breakfast, right? And maybe at breakfast I'll start to look through it. But here's the thing, when I'm ready, when I'm ready, that's when the digital stream begins for the day. Okay, again, this is not for everybody. Another one, on Mondays, okay, my Sabbath, 
I don't respond, and you know this, I don't respond to work emails or texts. Now, I do look at my phone uh, because I have other personal stuff coming in, like from my kids and from other spheres of, of life, uh, scheduling stuff with Brooklyn's basketball or whatever. I have to be looking at that. But I don't respond to church stuff on Mondays. I need at least a 24-hour break from all that. And I will say that over the years, you guys have been fabulous about that with Jen and I. That is one that we have in common. Okay, another one. I have covenant eyes on my computer and my phone. What is that? Well, installed on my computer and phone is accountability software. And what it does is it sends a report to Jen of all my online activity. And what it does is it flags various things that might be suspicious or concerning, especially anything potentially related to pornography. Now, here's the deal. You guys, I, I didn't come to Jesus until I was 20 years old, but I started with porn when I was like maybe 12-ish. And at first, it was just little boys sharing magazines. And then in middle, in middle school and high school, my buddies were all sharing VHS tapes with each other. And what happened is my brain was deeply imprinted by all of that. It just was. In fact, when I came to Jesus, it took me years to battle that addiction. It took me years to fully and finally break free. So here's the thing. I don't want anything to do with that stuff anymore. There's a part of me that does, but the better part of me says, I don't want anything to do with that stuff anymore. It doesn't help me honor women in my head. It doesn't help me feel good about my life with God. And it is a barrier in my marriage for sure. So I've had to take some steps to really weed it out and to keep it out. And the Covenant Eyes software has been a huge difference maker for me. Because it only takes 10 seconds of weakness or 10 seconds of, of, of one click to be right back in it. And I just don't like what it does to me at all. I don't like it. Some of you are you're, you're, like, maybe you don't follow Jesus or what, and you're like, I don't, I don't care about that. Fine. You don't have to adopt this. This is me. So covenant eyes with reports to Jen, I need it. Um, but I also want to say that this is not a surefire solution for people that want to want to leave pornography behind. It works for me, but for some, the, the addiction is too strong for just that. Like it needs to be that with, coupled with some other stuff. And I've actually had people in our church that have come to me with serious sexual or pornography addictions. And porn actually can be a gateway into all kinds of stuff. Um, and so I have referred people to several counselors. And I'm gonna put a resource up on the screen for you in this way. Um, you could always go back and look at the message online or whatever. You don't have to call me for a referral. I get that you might not want to call me for a referral. So um, this is the site that I typically use is seattlechristiancounseling.com. It's a pretty amazing site. And on there, what happens is you just keyword in anything that you want help for. Um, and it'll, it'll give you a list of counselors, Christian counselors in the greater Seattle area who work with people in, in that area. And I've used it to connect people with, you know, counselors for depression and anxiety stuff and identity stuff. But I've also sent people there for sexual addiction stuff. And so if you're, if you're struggling, I just want to tell you, you are not alone. In fact, you're more than not alone. You would be shocked at how common of an issue this is. But also, I want to tell you, it is possible to overcome it with help. If you entrust yourself to somebody who knows how to deal with this stuff. 
Um, and here are a couple guys that Brookview folks have been helped by. You're like, why are their names up there? These are real sex addicts. No. <laughs> these are actually counselors. Um, uh, and these are people that I, I have actually referred people from Brookview to for various things. And they have, they have come out on the other side of, with all kinds of new freedom. It's been beautiful. So those are two that I can recommend. Will they take your insurance? I don't know. Um, but if you go to that website, you can find all kinds of folks, and they can refer you to other folks, and it's a great starting point. Okay, for some of you, here's what I'll say. This may be the most important thing you heard this morning. And you know, if you, if you need real help, and if you take the step, it, it can change your life for porn or for sex stuff or for lots and lots and lots of other stuff. And so I just want to say, if you've been feeling God tug on you about some of this, Listen to that and act on it. Listen to him and go and watch what he might do. Okay, a couple more boundaries for me. Um, Jen always has access to my phone and my email. Um, in other words, she can access either of them anytime she wants. What is the point of this? The point of it is I don't want the temptation of living a secret life. So I don't have some code on my phone that my wife doesn't know. Um, and she, she could get into my email, and, and the only time that it's really annoying is if I'm trying to like, plan a surprise party for her or something. <laughs> um, one more, last one. Many of you know this as well. I do not play fantasy football. <laughs> it, it, okay. <laughs> you promised to not judge me. <laughs> I even, even women were booing me on that one. I, yeah. Okay, here's what I'll say. It isn't because I wouldn't love it. And by the way, you don't want me in your league. I would dominate you. <laughs> it would become an obsession. It would. And so I don't do it. There's nothing wrong with it. I'd love it. Okay, it's a bad idea for me. And, and this is, for me, it's simply about attention management. Um, so let me just kind of land this thing. Some of you are like, you're going to land this thing. Yes, I am. Think about you. How well do your deepest values align with your digital rhythms? How much time do you spend and doing what? Now, let me ask you a very simple but important question. What is getting way too much of your attention? And it may not be a bad thing that you're doing. It's just that you're doing it way too much. And the opportunity cost for you is really high. I mean, the truth is, by cutting back, you could direct that amount of attention elsewhere, and, and it could free up time to do something like amazing, like learn a foreign language. Some of you, really, you could, in two years from now, you could know a foreign language if you just redirected your attention a little bit. Some of you, you could learn to play an instrument. You could learn to, you know, uh, you, like, guys, you could learn Spanish or French or Japanese or guitar or piano or bagpipes or whatever. Uh, you know, we, it, it, we complain so much in our culture that we don't have any time. And yet I wonder how many of us have way more time than we would dare to admit. Okay, another question. What isn't getting enough of your attention? Maybe it's a person or a group of people. Maybe it's a spiritual discipline. Maybe it's something that you know breathes life into you, but it needs you to give it more attention. What isn't getting enough 
of your attention. And so what if you directed your attention away from one thing toward another? What if you made like a thoughtful plan and then you followed through with it? I just envision what might be possible for you. It actually could be a huge thing over time. All right, Father in heaven. We live in a world in a reality that is, there is stuff coming at us like we, we can't even believe. We have our phone and we want certain things from it. And sometimes it's like trying to get a sip of water from a fire hose. It's just so much coming at us. And this is tricky and it's hard, but there's real benefits to having the technology as well. And we have to wade through all of that. And you know that. And you're gracious and you're patient and you're kind and you are good. And so, Father, would you, would you guide us as we wrestle through this? Would you give us wisdom and would you give us strength? And would you help us to be wise? So that our values align with the way we utilize our attention because it's limited. So God, would you, would you speak to us individually about our lives and would you guide us? We need you. We need your wisdom. Amen.